This week on Myths and Legends, it's something we've never done before. It's two myths and a lie. Through it, we'll learn how to spot a pirate and get a great deal on a New Year's goose. To watch out because that firewood you're using might actually be a secret child. And that if you don't have a care in the world, you really might want to keep that to yourself. The creature this week is a deer woman who will scream at you until you go away or make you fall in love with her. Myths and Legends, episode 348, Untitled Goose Episode. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are tales that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's episode is something we've never done before, with three stories we've never told. Two stories are old tales from two different places in the world, One is completely new, by us. The challenge is this. Take a listen to all three, then vote on our Instagram poll, without cheating, which one you think is our new one. Special thanks to Nate at our favorite coffee shop for this idea. We'll jump into the first story with a couple running some errands. Nicholas Van Wemple. What could be said of him that wasn't already said? What could be stated that he himself had not already shared, or slurred, to the entire pub just before closing? He's my best friend. Any number of patrons had sworn throughout the night, as they often did, what with old Van Wimple keeping the ale flowing. Nicholas liked to drink with friends, to buy drinks for his friends, and so naturally, the entire establishment had long decided that they were, collectively and indeed, his friends. For my best customer, the owner had said that evening, sliding a final drink across the bar. Ten minutes later, closing time arrived. See you tomorrow, the owner called from behind the bar, from the sea of friends wobbling out the door, and from Nicholas himself, the echo faded into the night. Tomorrow. Yes, the same time, tomorrow. No... Not not tomorrow, Nicholas Van Wemple. Tomorrow, you're supposed to go to Dr. Beck's to pick up the goose for... For New Year's. How could I forget? Excuse me? I meant, how could I forget? The New Year's goose, it is so very important. Nicholas had just arrived home from the pub. One look, and Vrouw Van Wemple knew exactly what he'd been up to. The dribbles down his shirt and the yeasty burps had given him away even before his mouth spilled it all. Did they at least pay you today? She asked, holding out a hand. A half-hearted low five clapped against her palm, but left no coins behind. All of it? You got paid today, and you spent all of it. It was the guys, Nicholas defended. We got talking, and after a while, it was only right to get a drink for my friends. For your friends. I didn't want to be rude or anything. Frau had heard enough. After all, what could Nicholas say that hadn't already been said? Every day, every week, every month. I need you to remember the goose tomorrow. It's important. Dr. Beck, for whatever reason, has geese, and he saved the last one for us. I'll get it. I will. Nicholas promised with a smile. Frau only stared. You, you don't have to worry. Okay. It's just, it's New Year's Eve tomorrow. The Eve of 1739? 
For a moment, the couple stared at one another. The eve of 1739, the story had made a point to say, but did that mean the night before 1739 began, or the eve occurring in and at the end of 1739, which would make the next day the start of 1740, not 1739? See? Nicholas burped and then spit up, but only a little. That's what all of us at the pub were trying to figure out. We had so much to drink, we couldn't remember what year this one was. I thought you said you had a drink. You and your friends a drink. Okay, we did, but that was after the first two. You had three. Yes. Nicholas. Plus three. Ugh. Okay. You know, I have some gold stashed away that we can use for tomorrow for the goose. For the goose, yes. But please, remember what it's for? I will. I promise. I vow, Vrow Van Wimple. Get it? Because you're your vrow, vow, vrow. That's not funny. Yeah, I know. At noon the next day, Nicholas Van Wimple hugged his wife and left with a hat on his head, the head that was still pounding for no particular reason, a coat on his shoulders, and the family's emergency funds in his pocket. For the goose, I shall return with the goose. He'd left just in time, too, seeing as how snow had just begun to fall. Already, a dusting swirled across the path, gathering at the edges of the grass. Fortunately, he'd also remembered a scarf. At 3 a.m. the following morning, however, that scarf was gone. And it was still gone, as if Rao Van Wimple helped her shaking and unaccountably wet husband into the kitchen. Warming up some coffee, she waited for his nerves to steady. So... Are you going to tell me what you were doing out there? It all began when I left this morning. Oh, I I don't need to know the whole day, just why you were unconscious, you know, in the The snow. wind had other plans, Nicholas interrupted. Where and how required a why, and Vrow really needed to know the history of the day. The wind bit my layers, cut me to the bone. The blacksmith's fire raged on my left. The baker's piping ovens tempted on two fronts. The pub, well, honey... I am a man of my word. It was not an option. I should not. Nay, I could not. Nay, I would not waste all our money, our New Year's goose money, as we've talked about, on drink. I walked by, soldiering on, pulling the scarf a little tighter around my cheeks. But, like I said, the wind had other plans. It was really the wind's fault that, well, I did end up in the pub. (sighs) Nicholas... I'm being honest. The wind snatched my hat and it tumbled to the open door. Ha, open, of course. It was, it was open a crack. But the smell of smoke and schnapps and the sound of my friends telling me to come in and get warm. And they remembered the day before all those drinks I bought. And they wanted to pay me back. So I figured I'd wait for the wind to die down and warm myself up with one finger of schnapps. Then I would be right on my way. Go on. Yeah. Um. Hey, unrelated, completely unrelated, by the way, you ever think we should get a new mattress? Because I don't don't think I'm sleeping well, Nicholas said. I must have been so tired from the night before because I woke up several hours later at the bar. And I'm going to be real. I'm sorry, honey. The emergency goose money, it was gone. And I have no idea how it happened. Nicholas, darling, just so I have this straight, you fell asleep in the middle of the day. Yes, 
in the bar. Yes. And your money, which is our money, was all gone. Also, yes. And you don't remember how any of this happened? I feel like you're conflating a lot of different, disparate, unrelated facts here. I see what you're getting at, and it's not not correct, but we haven't even gotten to the pirates. This particular misdirection worked the way it needed to when she didn't follow up. Pirates, you say? I have heard the neighbors talking about pirates. Yeah, crazy, right? I woke up, probably because of our mattress, unlikely that it was for any other reason, I woke up to the sound of two men in the corner of the room. Pirates. Those were the pirates. Well, what did they look like? Well, I mean, they had, they had the look. I'm, I'm sure they did. You just said they did. But what was the look? Rings in the noses and ears, big bushy beards, leather jackets. (gasps) I woke to them talking about gold. One of them said, Yarg, so that's where the gold be. Vrow turned to tend the fire, and Nicholas continued, speaking to her back. Short story, slightly shorter, the gold was in the Flatlands Tide Mill, in the cellar. It was buried there. One was telling the other to bring a shovel, but you know who was going to bring a shovel there first? Let me guess, you? Wrong. Me. Oh, oh, okay, you guessed right. Well, so yeah, I did come back here earlier. I didn't want to wake you. I didn't want you to see me as a failure, having spent all of our money. I wasn't just going to make it right. I was going to make us rich. So... I grabbed the shovel and made for the Flatlands Tide Mill to steal from some pirates. The getting it out of the ground was the easy part. Nicholas had been quite surprised by how easy it was, and by the sight, such that he wished he'd grabbed a wheelbarrow from the shed as well. Fortunately, there had been a burlap sack in the cellar, but... Unfortunately, the burlap sack split on the way out, spilling gold coins all over the floor. Fortunately, I had a mind to start shoveling the gold down my pants. You mean you funneled it into your pockets? Frau leaned back and crossed her arms. Well, no, I wanted to get as much as possible, so I tied off the bottoms of my pants and just started scooping gold into them. It was extremely cold and very uncomfortable, and when I started wading out of there... Silhouettes in the candlelight at the top of the stairs filled the doorway to the cellar. It was the pirates from the bar. Nicholas shared how the pirates laughed at him, his pants brimming with gold. They made him untie the bottoms and drain them, and they dragged him upstairs where they pumped him full of liquor to extract a confession. They wanted to know who all knew about the gold in the cellar. Then, at last, they gave me an option. They pulled out their flintlock pistols and pointed to the window. I had 10 seconds to get a running start. It was either stay there to die or risk almost certain death jumping through glass, glass that would slice me a thousand different ways before a 30-foot fall. Still, my love, I wanted to see you again. So, I started running. And as he ran, Nicholas had hoped Rao would understand. He prayed that God would be merciful, and he saw... The goose. Peeking from a bag on the table was a New Year's goose that the pirates had taken. It was massive, Nicholas shared, and it would save my life. I scooped it up and, putting it in front of me, it broke the glass. I flew through the air, but the goose broke my fall. I stood to my feet and heard gunshots from above, but those things take like 40 minutes to reload or something, and by the time I had to stop to breathe, 
I made it to our road. There, I collapsed in the snowbank, calling out your name, not 100 feet from our house. Next thing I remember, well, I was looking into the face of an angel. It was, of course, your face, Nicholas smiled, because you're my angel. Mm. So, is that it? What do you mean, is that it? I was threatened by pirates. I barely escaped with my life. And I managed to still get the goose. But no gold, though, from the Yar pirates? Not not a coin at all? Well, no, they made me empty the gold. Mm-hmm. Right before they plied you with liquor and shoved you out a window, which you used the goose to get through. You were quite peppy at that part of the story. I, I feel like you're being facetious, but it's true. All of this actually happened. I got the goose, too, right? I did. He did. Every year, Nicholas told the story, while Vrau and his friends at the pub looked at one another and shook their heads. He did. He had. He thought. Okay, so that was the first story, our first of three. We'll jump into the next story, but that will be read after this. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Holiday gift giving at our house is always about quality, not quantity. One really thoughtful present and time together mean more to us than all the stuff in the world. One year, that meant we gifted experiences. Another, all the extended family planned vacation together. That was one of the best years. But, you know, there's one gift you'll receive this year that you have total control over, and that is the gift to yourself. Maybe it's being a little nicer to yourself, or taking a morning or an afternoon to just rest. That is so important. Maybe you start therapy or get back into therapy. I can't tell you how helpful a therapist has been at one time or another in my life. Yeah, mine too. Having positive coping strategies and other tools on hand continue making a significant difference every day. Therapy has helped both of us at different times. And if starting therapy is on your mind this holiday, BetterHelp is a great place to look. It's all online and designed to be convenient and flexible with your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. In the season of giving, give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com myths today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash myths. Our next partner is AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I drink it every day, and I gave AG1 a try because, as I always say, what I was doing before wasn't cutting it. Oh, you had, like, this handful of vitamins. Oh, it was terrible. It was way too many vitamins. I didn't want to make a list because I didn't want to be that vitamin guy with a list. But at the same time, I could never remember what I took or didn't. Well, with AG1, it's easy now. I drink AG1 in the afternoon, right before working out. It's a good routine for me, and it makes me feel like I'm really doing something healthy. You know exactly what you're taking. (laughs) Without the list. Very important. AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement delivering comprehensive nutrients to support whole body health. In this, AG1 replaces your multivitamin, probiotic, and more in one simple and drinkable habit. That's what it did for me. The ease of making AG1 a habit. Now it's delivered every month, and with AG1 travel packs, I'm covered on the road too. One scoop of powder and water, drink up, done. If you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com legends. That's drinkag1.com legends. Check it out. Mountains brought many things, and for the first time, 
the couple found what they were after. The new thing, not, not the old thing. They had long given up on the possibility of the old thing. Which wasn't to say they stopped thinking about the old thing. That was, of course, impossible. That was exactly the problem. That was the real reason they'd moved away. While neighbors and friends turned gray, up and down the rest of the street, bolstered by the laughter of children and then grandchildren, the couple had felt only the rooms in their house growing cold, just like their hope. Over the years, the weight of seeing what they couldn't have became a burden too great to carry. And in the end, the couple packed their things and left altogether. On foot, they fled to a place where snow might account for the constant chill in every corner, and their loneliness explained by the solitude they had chosen. It was a new life, and a fresh start, though they were getting up there in years. I'm going out to collect wood, the wife called from the door one morning. Like many days before, she tied a scarf around her head and pulled a basket onto her back. Very good, dear. I will have a fire ready when you return. The husband replied through the wrinkles of his grin. He held up a small pot and something to eat. Every day it was the same, and with routine, heartbreak had eventually softened. After all this time, it was at least manageable. The sun had just come out from behind the clouds when the woman decided to return home. With sweat beating along her brow, she leaned like a flower in the wind, balancing the load of wood on her shoulders. She hiked up one hill and down the next, on familiar paths tamped down by her own feet. But when she crested the next rise, something new caught her eye. It was a little girl with bare feet, crouched on a rock with three long walking sticks balanced across her knees. Aren't you cold, little girl? The woman asked, setting down her basket. She looked left and right through the trees. Where are your parents? There's no one who lives out here for miles, or kilometers, I guess. The girl grinned and unfolded from the rock. When she stood, she no longer looked like a child, but a grown woman. I don't need parents, she laughed. But I know you want to be one. You and your husband both. The words stung, and their truth and impossibility, they burned. That is a dream I have long given up, the wife grumbled, already bending to retrieve her load. Beside her feet, the bottoms of the walking sticks thumped into view. And when the wife looked up, the girl who'd become a woman was now her elder. Her hair faded and thin. The folds of her smile curved like her back. Three sticks, three sons, the strange grandmother sang. Care for them as you would children, and they will become what you wish. One by one, and side by side, the ends of the walking sticks sank into the dirt. But how can you... The wife began to say, but the grandmother was nowhere to be found. Instead, a, a skull, half buried by the snow. She blinked, and even that was gone. Only the three sticks remained. Three tall poles, planted in the ground like branchless pines, beside the basket of wood. The whole thing was, yes, ridiculous. The wife had left the sticks in the woods because it 
was so ridiculous. Not only the idea that sticks should sprout arms and legs and become children, but the idea of reopening a wound that had finally healed, or at least scarred over. She wouldn't do it. She refused. And so, the wife had left with only her basket in tow. But then, at the top of the final hill, curiosity grew in the beat of her chest. She turned back to fetch them, the children, the sticks. It's, I mean, it's ridiculous though, isn't it? She said as the couple sat staring at the wall. I should have left them there, I think. I mean, the whole thing was probably just a hallucination. I should, I should probably get something to eat. The poles had been nearly too much to carry. And in lugging them home, the woman had broken her basket in a fall, all for the sticks leaning against the wall, their sides smooth yet knobby. Well, what do you think? Aren't you going to say anything? The wife pressed her hands in her lap, waiting. I think the husband began and then he blinked several times. I think I, I'm going to go make you some soup. And he did. That day and every day thereafter, when the woman left to collect wood in the forest, she returned home to a pot of soup bigger than they'd ever needed. Soon, three chairs joined their table. In time, extra mats appeared on the floor, beneath the pillows sewn together from scraps. One evening, the husband started telling stories by the fire, his eyes glistening at the edges, as though three little children truly sat at his feet, soaking in every word. The depth of his chuckle at the end warmed the wife more than the fabric draped across her lap as she stitched together a third and final cloak. Gifts for the children, she murmured as they fell asleep. There was no need to say the extra words, lodged in both of their hearts. In case, in case the sticks became children tomorrow. In the morning, and every morning, only sticks remained. They stayed in their bed until hands propped them in chairs. They said nothing and did nothing while bowls on the table congealed and grew cold. They listened to stories and sat quietly all day, never asking for anything, never going out to play. They're, I think they're just sticks. That's all they are, the wife murmured, until tears bubbled and dribbled down the roll of her cheeks. A pair of arms hugged her close. Today. They're sticks today, my dear but there is always tomorrow. Like always, tomorrow came, and with it, another and another and another. Sticks remained sticks, and the couple grew older, but still they lived like a family. In time, carefully, the husband took the same stain he used with the tables and, with a brush, added a name to each of the sticks. Tom, Henry, and John. Three sticks, three sons. It became part of their routine, this talking to sticks and singing to sticks and carting them all through the woods. Every day it was the same, and in time, disappointment eventually softened. Once again, old wounds became manageable. That was until the war. By then, the couple had visited their old village several times, once a year, and only for a day, to buy and sell in the market. It's what they would have done with real children, and so they traveled with whittled wares and stood by their cart in the street. This year, however, everything looked different. The square was no longer a market, but a meeting. In the center, leather-clad soldiers stood on boxes, shouting and collecting from the people, 
Warriors in the front were hungry and cold. Food, firewear, clothing. Bring what you can, the soldiers thundered. Fight with us, and if you can't, then support those who can. The couple had come only to sell their creations. They'd stayed only to hear and learn. A war? Wait, what war? Had their solitude sheltered them from even this? In waves, the crowd pressed. In their current, the couple could no longer leave. Their feet and the cart pushed further and further into the square toward the soldiers on boxes with scowls. Your contribution is accepted, the nearest one boomed, his finger pointing toward the couple. On his snap, others beside him jumped down with strong hands, seizing the cart and the wood and the sticks. The sticks, cried the wife, throwing herself on the cart. Never had her husband yelled as loud as he did, waving his arms at the soldiers. Have the cart, have the wood, they can give money, just don't take the sticks, please. But they were gone, swallowed by the curtain of a crowd and the chants of the people. The sticks and the couple's hope that rose and fell through the years like the hills, they were simply gone. But there are only children, the wife murmured. Spears. There'll be spears, the last of the soldiers barked. For the war. Now go home. Mountains once cold were now frozen. Solitude became theirs by force once again. And now the chairs around the table sat empty and mats collected dust on the floor. Stories by the fire grew silent and trips to the village ceased. Seasons came and went and the couple remained in the mountains. And then one morning, as the wife crested the final hill in the woods with a basket of wood on her shoulders, Something new caught her eye. From a distance, it looked like the wagging tail of a dog. But up close, it was her husband, standing outside, waving a spoon in his hand. With more air than voice, he told her to come quick. Come inside and see. Her hand fell onto his, and her steps followed too. And there, against the wall, were the sticks. They'd leaned, propped against the hearth, as they'd done the first day. Longer than a girl once was tall. Smooth, yet knobby, for now. At their tops, a steel point, a sharp tip on each one, glinting by the glow of the fire. They were spears. I don't understand, the wife started to say, but a knock at the door made her turn. Armfuls of wood and leather-clad shoulders appeared in the opening. Heads ducked before legs entered the house and bent beneath the table. Mouths ate while bowls steamed and emptied. Ears listened to stories that night by the fire and backs rested on mats on the floor. And in the morning, three young soldiers donned three warm cloaks. And when they stepped from the house, they no longer looked like men grizzled from the war, but children like teens, for that was what they were. Their names? Tom, Henry, and John. The boys had been issued the spears in the war, astounded that the names on the sticks somehow matched their own. 
the spears that had saved their lives in a hundred different ways. And at the end of it, when the war was nearly over, when they knew they were going to live, they resolved to find the people who donated them. Just for them, it seemed. It had been difficult to find someone who donated a stick in wartime, but they managed. And after they discovered a tragic truth about their own family, they finally made their way up the mountain. Our family is gone, said the eldest. Our house is open, said the wife. If you want, you can stay. And together, the family walked through the hills and the mountains. The sticks. The children. They were home. to our third story, but that will, once again, be right after this. Emperor Charles V mouthed the sentence a few times, turning the words over in his mouth. Are you reading this? He turned to the captain of his guard. I, I can't read... Literacy rates in the medieval and early modern period... A waving hand stopped his talking as Charles turned to his chief minister. Are you reading this? With a sigh and a squint, the minister studied the words on the door to the monastery before saying them aloud. Here you live without a care. The minister shrugged. Okay? Okay? Does someone really exist on this earth who is free from care? I'm emperor. I am overwhelmed with troubles... While well, here, this monastery, that is a little kingdom unto itself, lives without worry. I don't believe it, the emperor stroked his beard. It is uh, excellent marketing, your excellency, the minister groaned. Now, if they could all stop halting the entire retinue whenever they saw what was essentially a roadside ad, they really needed to get to the village before nightfall. The rebels were still in the land, and they could not take any more attacks on their supply train. Charles took a final look at the door and shook his head. Huh. There they were again. All his cares. By nightfall, the village down the road burst into a field of tents from the emperor's soldiers. The tavern at the center of town became a makeshift court, but the emperor looked off through the window to the monastery on the hill. To a life without cares. Bring him to me, the emperor blurted as his chief minister was mid-sentence. The, bring the rebel leader to you? Yeah, that's the point? We're working on that, but the knights in the east are well fortified. It's this whole, what? No, I meant the abbot. The emperor's eyes didn't leave the hill. The abbot. The emperor groaned. The abbot in the monastery, the one without a care. The war was on hold until he spoke to this abbot. Boots pounded planks, obedient to the emperor, while the one man daring to speak truth to power pointed out that that wasn't how rebellions worked. You couldn't just put them on hold. There were a lot of lives at stake. Charles put his fingers in his ears and shook his head. Nope, no more war talk. Not until he spoke with the abbot. He saw your ad when we were marching by the minister whispered to the abbot. He just wants to have a talk. Nothing to worry about. 
I never worry, the abbot smiled. Okay, cool, very on brand, the minister sneered and pushed the heavy doors open for the abbot, who, hands folded and habit dusting the floor, seemed to glide in the emperor's court in the inn. So, you're the abbot of the monastery, the one without a care. Charles V, holy Roman emperor, asked the abbot. The abbot bowed. He was at his emperor's service. Charles took a deep breath. (laughs) Living without a care, that's fantastic. Also, how dare you? Eyes around the inn widened. As the abbot rose from his bow, he, sorry, he thought he might have misheard. Was the emperor angry with him? How do you do it? Live without a care, that is, the emperor demanded. It was simple, the abbot informed the emperor. They lived simply. They ate when they were hungry, drank when they were thirsty, and slept when they were tired. They worked hard and didn't overly concern themselves with matters of this world. Oh, good for you, the emperor said in such a way that told you he definitely meant exactly what he said. And the abbot had lived there his whole life. With a smile and a nod, the abbot said he had been the second son of a noble, and he had gone into the clergy in early adolescence, and don't care, the emperor stopped him. It was time for the abbot to have his fair share of trouble. Armor clanged and shifted at the tables on either side of the emperor. In his rough habit, the abbot suddenly felt the difference between himself and the rest of the emperor's servants in the inn. Three questions that you will answer, or I will extract the penalty from you, your monastery, and everyone else who has dared to live there without care. Oh, the emperor leaned over to his scribe. He liked that. That was a good rhyme. Make sure you get that one. Am I dying? I hate this. The abbot laid back and stared up at the beautiful cloud-dotted sky, but noticed none of it. No, it's just crushing anxiety. The monastery shepherd he had invited in to partake in his misery, and maybe, hopefully, offer some solutions, sat down and took out his lunch. Though the abbot didn't know the answers to the emperor's questions, he didn't want to infect the rest of the monastery with his consternation. (laughs) I'm surprised it's not more of a problem with the amount of cheese you guys eat, the shepherd agreed. The abbot furrowed his brow. No, consternation. Whatever. What even are these questions that you need to find the answers to? Maybe they're not that hard. The shepherd said that he thought that maybe he could help. You can't help. The abbot pointed. That cloud looked like a burning monastery. I mean, the shepherd couldn't help unless he knew the depth of the sea. Mm, Yeah, I do. The shepherd nodded with barely a moment to think. The abbot laughed, oh, okay, and he knew how many cowtails it would take to measure the distance between themselves and the sun. Boy, is that really the second question? The shepherd laughed, because that's, that's an easy one. Okay, what's the answer then? The grass tickled the abbot's cheek as he rolled his head to look at the shepherd. The shepherd sat back with a smile. Uh, what's the third question? The third question was the most Bilbo Baggins nonsense failsafe imaginable. It was, what am I thinking? A low whistle echoed across the garden as, outside the gate, the shepherd saw one of his sheep getting a bit too bold. He turned back to the abbot. Well, that was probably the easiest one of all. The abbot guffawed. Easy. How was that easy? The abbot felt a hand on his shoulder. 
the shepherd would handle all of this. Consider it his tithe. The, the abbot said the shepherd didn't pay tithes? That's actually, he'd been meaning to talk to the guy, but exactly, the shepherd smiled. Now, he needed the abbot's clothes. Hmm, yes, Latin words, the abbot murmured. Did you just say Latin words? Emperor Charles V asked. Well, I am an abbot. The shepherd, wearing the habit, who was not an abbot, smirked. The emperor had only seen the abbot once, when the man was cowering in a dimly lit inn, so while this all seemed out of character, the abbot was experiencing stress for the first time in his life, so maybe this was just how he was responding to it. So, I assume you have come to beg for your life and the lives of those at your monastery. Having finally discovered worry, the emperor smiled and sat back on his rickety chair. Oh, no, actually, I have your answers. The abbot looked the emperor in the eye. The emperor laughed. Uh, really? No groveling, then. He was eager to see how this played out. Okay, let's do it. First question, how deep is the ocean? The faux abbot didn't hesitate. Oh, a stone's throw. The emperor opened his mouth, then closed it. He opened it again, but... Hmm. He hadn't asked how deep it was in feet or meters. And it was true that a stone thrown from a boat could theoretically hit the bottom of the sea. (sighs) Acceptable? The not-at-all abbot asked. The emperor nodded. As for how many cowtails can measure the distance between us and the sun, just one. The shepherd held up a finger. The emperor was almost afraid to ask, but he didn't need to, because the fake abbot explained. Only one was needed if it was long enough. The emperor thought about it. He hadn't asked the distance on that one. It was technically correct. The best kind of correct, according to Futurama. And when it comes to what you're thinking, that one is the easiest of all, the abbot said. The emperor knew that that wasn't the case. This was his failsafe, his ace in the hole. You think you're talking to the abbot? Yes, the emperor admitted before shoving his hands over his mouth. But you're not, the abbot said, gripping his beard for the big reveal. He pulled it off and revealed that the abbot was back at the monastery, praying or something, probably. The emperor was talking to the abbot's shepherd. The emperor could not believe what he was hearing. Then he rose. Well, the shepherd said. Well, the emperor said his deal was with the abbot. And this shepherd just admitted that he was not that man. The abbot rushed to the front gate. When he saw the emperor's forces arrayed on the horizon, he had been a fool to trust the shepherd. The same armor that the abbot heard in the inn the first time, the one where he was threatened, clanged behind the emperor as the man himself ambled up to the gate. The abbot stood in front of the sign that they still had up for some reason. They should probably take that down. The abbot bowed, but the emperor told him to rise. The abbot said he was so sorry about the shepherd. The man was brilliant? Yeah. He solved all the riddles. You're, you're good. 
That guy's scary, the emperor shook his head. Uh, Mark his words, that guy will be emperor in a few years. Not his problem, though. The abbot had a lot to catch up on. Wait, if he was good, why was the emperor here, and why was the emperor not concerned with a potential super smart usurper? Uh, it's because I'm abdicating, Emperor Charles V said. That's why all these guys were here, to witness him lay aside his power. The abbot shook his head. What was, what was happening? Charles laughed. Yeah, he was abdicating, giving it up. He was the Holy Roman Emperor. He was one of the most powerful people on the planet, but he didn't have what they had. He couldn't live free from care. His power, the life he built, was the problem. So he was leaving it behind to live here with the abbot and the monks. The abbot had even found a way to turn his own questions on him. Even the shepherd could outsmart an emperor. There was something here. And the emperor wanted to find peace before the end. So here, he would live a simple life, free from care. After a bunch of pomp, the soldiers marched away, leaving the emperor free of his adornments and his silks and his simple cloak. A man, he breathed the first unburdened breath of his life and followed the abbot into the monastery. And the real Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, did, in fact, abdicate and join a monastery afterwards. It's up to speculation whether or not it had anything to do with riddles and an especially smart shepherd. So there you have it. Three stories, two of which are old, one of which is brand new that we made up for this episode. Think you know which one it was? Let us know on Instagram at Myths and Legends. You can comment on the episode post. You can vote in our poll and our stories. And there's also a poll over on the site at MythPodcast.com. And while you're there, if you'd like to support the show, there's a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of PVC-made lobster slippers, you can get ad-free versions of this show and bonus episodes that are, I think, pretty great. Although not in the eye-catching shoe of the summer or elastic or in half sizes. For more info on the membership, check out mythpodcast.com slash membership. The creature this week is the Kashihotopolo from Choctaw folklore in North America. What caught my eye about this creature is not that she is a deer woman, though that does catch some eyes. More on that later. No, what made this one stand out was that the creature apparently has a, quote, vestigial head. Now, if you aren't familiar with the word vestigial, it means, basically, something that has degenerated, weakened, or atrophied because it's lost function over the course of evolution. I can't think of anything in nature that has a head where the head has no function, but, well, that's the Kashihotopolo. And if the head is so useless, I am curious how it screams, because that's what the Kashihotopolo is famous for. Her scream. The name literally means a combination of woman and to call. If she sees a human, she'll let out a terrifying scream and then run home to the swamp. We should probably circle back to the guys who are super into the fact that she's a deer woman, because that is apparently 
a thing, attractive to promiscuous men and really anyone who doesn't care if their significant other's feet are hooves, they will lure people into the forest to eat them, or if they are unappetizing, let them waste away in love sickness. I'll be real. The Kashihuta Polo does seem to be giving some confusing signals. If she wants to be left alone, totally cool. Respect that. But then there's the attracting people to eat them, but only, I guess, people that she finds attractive enough to eat. Otherwise, she'll make them waste away in love with her. It's kind of like when you take something off the buffet, but you're too full to eat it, and then that thing loves you until it dies of sadness. You know, exactly like that. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is a podcast by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more of the music we used in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.